The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Morning, everyone. Welcome to Long Ball Legacies here on the Pitcherlist Podcast Network. I hope everyone had a really great Turkey Day. I know mine was really nice. Thanksgiving is always one of my favorite times of the year, and I hope it really was great for all of you. My name is Daniel Port. Thank you for joining me here on this beautiful Saturday morning. Very excited to have you all here. Today we're going to follow up on our last episode from two weeks ago, talking about Jose Altuve. Where today I'm actually going to talk about two examples of where we'd like to see Jose Altuve get to if we want to see him end up having a Hall of Fame career, what statistical numbers we'd like to see him get to, and also some player comps in terms of legacy and whatnot that would be good fits for Jose Altuve, and then we're going to rank him. And in fact, today we're going to actually talk about Ryan Sandberg of the Chicago Cubs and also talk about Roberto Alomar, largely considered one of the greatest second basemen to ever play the game. But before we dive into that, I actually want to sort of address something from last episode and provide some clarification, some new information that has come my way. And I think one of the hard parts of doing this show, and really any show that is pretty research heavy, that's looking a lot at history and sort of giving your thoughts and your takes on history, is that you're not going to find everything, right? I spend probably about anywhere from 10 to 20 hours on each episode and at least half of that is usually involved in research and putting together the, the notes for the episode. And it's inevitable that I'm going to miss things. Part of what's fun about doing this podcast is then having you, uh, the fans, engage back with me to help me pick up what I've missed or see perspectives that I don't have. That's what I want. I don't want this podcast to be simply how Dan and the occasional guest think about baseball. I want to see how everyone thinks about baseball. I want to have you come to me and change my mind. It's good to get other people's perspectives. It's good to say, yeah, I might have gotten that one wrong, or I didn't know that. And I don't want to be the host who's not willing to say that. So what I want to throw into this, as we talked about Jose Altuve last week, or last episode, obviously a lot is made one way or another about the Astros and the trash can and the cheating scandals that were linked to that team related around their first World Series run. And I weighed throughout the episode and, and in Jose Tuvi's ranking the allegations that he was part of that scandal, especially things involving allegations that he was wearing a buzzer of some sort during one of his very famous home runs where 
they where his teammates were tearing his shirt off and was trying to stop them and things like that. And I'll admit, and I, I, maybe I didn't express this enough, but all that information really didn't sway my ranking of him in the long run. I get and understand if that did or would have for a lot of people, but for me it didn't. Uh, and so I want to first start there. That one of the reasons I talked about Jose Otuve is he's one of my favorite players on that team and in the league. But I don't know if this information will necessarily change his ranking in the list as a whole. But with that being said, I do think it's important information that was passed on to me for how we talk about him and how we feel about Jose Altuve as a whole. And that's the real purpose of this. The, the ranking is more of a fun way to do this, but it's more about the conversation, right? So shortly after that episode went out, a, a lovely gentleman on Twitter named Matthew Simmons reached out to me and was incredibly kind and very, I would say, patient and very cordial. He was, he was not rude or mean or anything in any way, and I want to really commend him for that because that's not often the case on uh, Twitter, but he reached out to me and passed on some other information I didn't quite have on Jose Altuve. It was really helpful and really enlightening. For the most part, it has come out in many ways that there wasn't really a buzzer involved in that situation, so that's the first thing that was brought to my attention. And obviously, it's hard, you know, I'm mostly working from, not Google searches, I'm looking through pretty respected websites, looking through like Jaffe's writings and The Athletic and Baseball Perspectives. I'm just trying to gather as much information I can. I didn't really come across a lot of that, but it doesn't surprise me that once it was brought to my attention, it was pointed in the right direction. I, I did come across a lot of this. So that's the first thing. But then you look at the way that Altuve reacts in many videos, and I'll share the one that was specifically shared with me regarding the trash campaigns when they happened. He appear, appeared to not be a, a fan of the trash campaigns and seems pretty annoyed by them at all times. And then you throw in... Altuve came out and said, and I found the where Altuve says this, where he came out and said he wasn't going to talk about it being against it because he's got his teammates and he has to be their first teammates. And I feel like that was really a very important sort of, it almost made me respect him more. I get that. I understand where it's coming from. And also, you know, I was an athlete for a long, long time. You only get really one shot with a locker room, especially in a particular sport. You come out and rat out your teammates and you are persona non grata, right? You have to wonder what the effects are in any locker room from there on out. All those sort of things. So I don't necessarily blame Altuve for not ratting out his teammates. In fact, I probably would respect him less for that. So uh, these are all things that I want to to bring up and clarify in the sense of getting that information. And not necessarily telling you how you should feel about that or how you should consider it. For me, that certainly relieves me of the burden of having to try and judge him based on this, this scandal. And I get to go back to just liking the player and not having to worry about this. So I, I'm really glad this information came out. It's not something I've really had to do on the podcast before. And so I apologize if I was uh, rambling my way through it. But like I said, I just want to clarify that. I'll put some of the, the videos and uh, things in the notes so you can see them for yourself and see how you feel about it. With that being said, if you're talking about how I feel then towards Altuve's player ranking. So right now, to go back, I have Jose Altuve ranked number 20th on our list, which totals... 48 players right now, and he is between Paul Molitor at number 19 and Homer and Baker at number 21, and I think he stays there regardless of this information. As I mentioned in the episode before, I didn't really factor in too much into that ranking, and at some point I have a hard time taking Altuve and moving him too far ahead of Paul Molitor just because Molitor, he's got a full career still. 
He's got 3,000 hits. He's got all these numbers that are the benchmarks for making the Hall of Fame. Been doing so, obviously, despite being mostly a DH for his career. Altuve's got a couple years ahead of him still, but he's only at, he's not even at 2,000 hits yet, so he'd have to get another 1,000 hits. And I know in the episode I, I outlined uh, this is how I think he could get the 3,000 hits, potentially. But it's a, that's a lot. And so I think to project him as if I'm sure he's going to get the 3,000 hits, I think that's a lot. So I still think I'm going to put him behind Molitor, but it's a more sure ranking. It's a more, you feel good about it in that way that I don't think we have to, it doesn't have to be in that spot with an asterisk. It doesn't have to be in that spot with any caveats. And I think within that, as we add more players to this list and it starts really, we're really weighing a bunch of players and this starts getting more nuanced and deeper. I think that those, that the, the, having this additional information will really factor into how we interpret how Otuve comes up in those comparisons, right? Okay, so with that out of the way, let's jump into our players for today because we've got two guys to talk about. They're two really fun players, two guys who I have loved reading about and loved doing research about on two opposite ends of the spectrum in a lot of ways, but two very fascinating second basemen who easily have a claim to the title of best modern second baseman or generational second baseman or at least the best second baseman of their generations. And the guy I want to start with is Ryan Sandberg. So when I was younger, it was funny, I've talked about this a lot, but when I was growing up, I was a Cleveland fan, being from Cleveland, but I was also a Cubs fan because they were on TV all the time. We got WGN, WGN carries the Cubs games over in Cleveland. And so whenever I wasn't watching Cleveland games, I was watching the Cubs. And so obviously at a very young age, I got to see the tail end of Sandberg's career, but also just you listen to the broadcast and you listen to these things and they'd be talking about Sandberg and his lasting legacy and things that so catching the tail end of his career where I was gushing over what he had accomplished, I really became a big Ryan Sandberg fan growing up. So I thought this was a fun comparison to do. Now, before you jump into the year to year of his career, I do think he serves as a good benchmark for where Altuve needs to get to to be a Hall of Famer. What are those numbers? So Sandberg played for 16 seasons all but his rookie year were played with the Cubs. So basically played for one team his whole career. He was a 10-time All-Star. He had nine gold gloves and seven Silver Slugger awards. He's 11th among second basemen in Jaws. He's 11th in war with 68 war for his career. He's 10th in war seven, which if you remember from last episode, is essentially the total war they put up over the best seven-year stretch of their careers. He was tied for fifth in top five MVP finishes with three. He's 20th all-time in doubles. Fifth in home runs with 282, and this is all amongst second basemen. He's 19th in stolen bases, he's 15th in hits, 13th in runs, and 16th in RBIs. He's 14th in games played at second base, he's 24th in total putouts, 9th in assists, 20th in double plays, 20th in total zone runs, and 32nd in range factor. And it's important, the reason I bring up those numbers is because we have essentially these three players we're going to talk about. We've got Sandberg, and we've got Alomar. And all three of these guys were heralded throughout their careers as elite defensive second baseman. The hard thing is when you look at the numbers, for the most part, the only one who actually comes across as being an elite second baseman is Sandberg. Now, it's not necessarily a, a knock. I think one of the funny things about Altuve, if you were to think about it, so, for instance, Baseball Reference has him listed at 5'6", and when you imagine the the extra ground that Altuve has to cover to make those plays at second base that, you know, other players didn't, I think you can give the caveat of when you say, he doesn't cover as much ground. Yeah, he has a whole, probably another half a foot in, in wingspan. He doesn't get to cover as much ground. His legs weren't as long. He wasn't himself. So I think that there's something to be said for 
factoring in his size, even though he was incredibly fast. That, that, that It's not necessarily a fair comparison, but it's worth noting, Sandberg was considered an elite fielder and is the one of the second baseman we're going to talk about who really that showed in the numbers as well, the advanced statistics. So then to get into sort of Sandberg's background, he was originally from, I'm going to mess this up in my Washingtonian, girlfriend is going to make fun of me for this, but I believe it's Spokane, Washington, and he was a three-sport athlete in high school. He was actually recruited by Washington State, go Cougs, as a quarterback before he was drafted by the Phillies in 1978, and he chose to go into baseball and stick with, with that sport. And ended up being a great choice, as, as he's now a Hall of Famer. He has put together a fantastic career and is one of the, the greatest Cubs to ever play the game. It's interesting because he gets drafted, he goes to the minors, and he never really stands out. He's just a solid player who looks like an advanced, slightly finished product, if not an elite one. He flies through the minors because of this, and he makes his major league debut in 1981, so just three years later. And he plays for 13 unremarkable games with the Phillies that year. And these 13 games are the only games of his entire career he plays in a uniform other than Cubby Blue. So, again, tactically he did not play for the Cubs his entire career. It was 13 games. That's it. So we move into the offseason, and he's actually traded to the Cubs along with Larry Boa. So, a huge lopsided trade, historically speaking. When he arrives at the Cubs, the, the hard part is the Cubs already have someone at shortstop and uh, someone at second base. So they actually move him over to third base, and he plays there for the 1982 season. He's solid if unspectacular for a rookie. He gets 271 with seven home runs, 33 doubles, 54 RBIs, and 104 runs scored. The Cubs are not good, and that's going to be a theme for most of Sandberg's career. It's going to be a lot like if you remember when we talked about Ron Santo, and we talked about how, for the most part, one of the real shames of Ron Santo's career is that the Cubs stink for most of Santo's career, and it's held against them. And I think to a certain degree... That almost happens with Sandberg here, too. But the Cubs win 73 games this rookie year. And Sandberg puts up a 3.1 war season as a rookie. Everyone's pretty excited. You know, that, that's a really nice, solid rookie year. He finishes sixth in the Rookie of the Year voting. The winner that year was Steve Sachs, which is another fantastic, elite, all-time great player. No shame there. But the Cubs end up signing a player named Ron Say in 1983, and they move Sandberg to second base because they played third base. If you think of getting the player a year to settle in, he's learning this new position. Sometimes what you'll see is a player, either his numbers will dip or he'll struggle at the plate as he's trying to learn this other, you know, thing because he doesn't get to spend as much time in the batting cage or practicing those things. And we don't see that, actually. He responds by basically repeating the previous season. So another somewhere around 270, a handful of home runs, lots of doubles, scoring a lot of runs. And... He ends up winning his first gold glove this year. This is a stretch where you see the beginning of his reputation as an elite fielding second baseman. He ends up being worth 3.7 war that season. So we see uh, a boost up from the year before. And it's really 1984, though, where Sandberg starts lighting the world on fire. So he breaks out in a big way this year. So over 156 games, he has 314 with 36 doubles, 19 triples. And this is the thing about Sandberg. So we don't obviously have the same sort of speed numbers and measures for hitters back then that we do now. Yeah, I don't have a sprint speed for Ryan Sandberg or to tell you how fast he really was. But 19 triples is a lot. It's a lot in a season. And you pair that with some pretty high stolen base numbers because he steals 32 bases that year. So between 19 triples and 32 stolen bases, and frankly, 36 doubles, 
you're talking about a guy who had speed in bunches and was a smart base runner. So along with that 314 average, uh, he has 19 home runs. He has an 887 OPS, which is good for a 140 OPS plus. This is his third year in the league, by the way. And he has 200 hits overall with 84 RBIs and a league-leading 114 runs scored. He's worth 8.6 war that year. He goes to his first All-Star game. He wins his second gold glove in a row, his first silver slugger, and wins MVP. Again, this is his third season in the league, and he wins MVP. He was a full 2.3 war higher than the second place finisher. That's how good he was that year. It's wild. He just an all-time season for Ryan Sandberg. And obviously he starts taking the nation by storm. So it's really becoming a star, not just in Chicago, but across the country. And one of the big games that year that really put his name out there, it's it, to this day is called the Sandberg game, was they were on national TV. The Cubs were were facing, I believe, the Brewers. And the Brewers were winning, and they, they brought up their their elite closers, considered one of the best closers in baseball at the time, Bruce Sutter. And he comes up, and Sandberg homers off of him first in the ninth inning to tie the game, and then comes back up and homers off him again in the 11th inning to win the game. And this really puts him in the national spotlight. So the Cubs end up winning the NL East. And I talk about this with the Brewers, like when I talked about Ryan Yount, or I talked about some of these players who really come to moribund or uh, struggling franchises and lead them to great accomplishments. Winning the NL East that year for the Cubs was the first time the Cubs had won the NL East since 1945. We were like, we were basically storming Normandy the last time the Cubs won the NL East. That's how long ago it had occurred. So you're talking, gosh, what, this is in 1984? So almost 40 years it's hard to really get a sense unless you were there for what this meant to Cubs fans. I hadn't even been born yet when this happened. I was born the following year. It's just hard to get a sense of what this had to have meant for Cubs fans and how important this had to be. But this is where he really starts to cement that iconic status as a Cubs player. They go to the National League Championship Series and Sandberg is fantastic. They play five games. He hits 368 in the playoffs with seven hits, two doubles, three stolen bases, two RBIs, and three runs scored in those five games, but the Cubs do lose that series. So the following season, in 1985, Sandberg nearly replicates that MVP season. He hits 305 with 26 home runs now, nine triples, 31 doubles, 54 stolen bases, 83 RBIs, and 113 runs scored. It's hard in that, obviously, Sandberg... Puts up a fantastic year. It just was one of those years where there's just a stacked MVP race that overshadows how good Sandberg was that year. And he probably deserves better than 13th, which is where he finished. But it's kind of hard. Like I said, it was a really stacked MVP race that year. And part of also what hurt him there, I think, was that the Cubs themselves weren't very good. Basically, at one point, I think I was reading that every, I think it was four out of their five starters in the pitching staff were hurt at the same time at one point. So it just was not a great season for the Cubs. They ended up missing the playoffs. I'm sure that factored into his MVP voting that year as well. So then we go into 1986, 1987, 1988. These are, I wouldn't say down years for Sandberg. They're solid, fine years. They're just not what we had seen in 84 and and 85. He still steals 20 bags every year. He puts up respectable war, if you want to think of over, let's see, in 86. 
he puts up 3.5 war. It drops down in 87 to 2.4 war, but then in 88, jumps all the way back up to 4.7. So respectable. Those are starters, but not what we expect out of Sandberg. These are down years for him. It, it's also worth noting. He still hits 284, 294, and 264 over that three-year span, too. It's not, that, like I said, they weren't bad. It just was mortal numbers, not MVP numbers. And a big part of this was because, if you notice, in 85, he hits 26 home runs. In 84, he hit 19 home runs. This drops all the way down. He hits 14 home runs in 86. He hits 16 home runs in 87. And he gets finally back up to 19 home runs in 88. But the power had disappeared a little bit. The doubles were all down. The triples were all down. And then the stolen bases were down too. But he does win gold gloves and all-stars births every year over that time period. And then 89 comes around. And this is where we get full-on destroyer of worlds, Ryan Sandberg. Sandberg hits 290 that season in 1989 with a fantastic 30 home runs. He's got 25 doubles, 15 stolen bases, 76 RBIs, and a league-leading 104 runs score. He finishes fourth in MVP voting and was worth 6.3 war that year. He wins another gold glove, he wins another silver slugger award, and he goes to the All-Star game again. The Cubs win 93 games and win the NL East. And going into the playoffs now, we see, man, Sandberg is fantastic in in the playoffs here. He, they go to the NLCS, he hits 400 with a 458 OBP and an 800 OPS with a home run, four RBIs and six runs scored. The Cubs end up being defeated by the San Francisco Giants. Probably the worst part of all is this is actually the last playoff berth that Ryan Sandberg will have in his career, which is just really one of the true tragedies of his career. It's just the Cubs, I hate to say this, I know they're the lovable losers, and I, I, I rooted for them for most of my young life and my adult life. And I just, it's hard going through some of my favorite old Cubs players because just, man, the Cubs wasted so many careers over this time period. I would have loved to have seen Sandberg get more moments in the spotlight in the playoffs. So 1990 comes around, and Sandberg continues to find his home run stroke. He hits 40 home runs, which leads the league that year. He also hits 306 with a 910 OPS, which is good for a 140 OPS+. plus. He has 100 RBIs and leads the league again with 110 runs scored. This goes along with 25 stolen bases and 30 doubles. Just a stupendous offensive year. He goes again to the All-Star game. He wins a gold glove again and the Silver Slugger. He finishes fourth in MVP voting for the second year in a row and is worth 7.1 war. Probably the only thing that keeps him from winning his second MVP is the Cubs record. They only win 77 games that year. And Barry Bonds just lights the world on fire. There, there was no way he was going to top Bonds that year. Just to read you some of the numbers here, is worth 9.7 war. He hits 33 home runs. He steals 52 bases. He's 114 RBIs and 104 runs scored. Uh, he's 301 with a 970 OPS on the season. It just, no one was touching that. But if the Cubs had probably won more games, I think Sandberg would have had an argument for his second MVP award there. Now, a fun thing with this season was the All-Star game this year was actually in Wrigley Field. So Sandberg gets to go to the All-Star game and he ends up winning the Home Run Derby uh, that year in Wrigley, which... Is a pretty rare occasion to have a, the hometown guy win the Home Run Derby. It was very exciting. It was a really cool thing that happened to Wrigley and put some excitement into uh, that home crowd in a year where the Cubs did not win a lot of games. This was really cool. It was really fun to see. Now, from here, Sandberg is great again in 1991 for the following season. 
He hits 291 with 26 home runs, 32 doubles. He has 100 RBIs and 104 runs scored with 22 stolen bases. He, again, sound like a broken record, but he wins the gold glove again. That's his ninth consecutive gold glove and is an all-star and wins the Silver Slugger Award. The Cubs stink again. They win only 77 games to miss the playoffs. But Sandberg is not the reason why. He, he is worth seven war that season and finishes 17th in MVP voting. And something to bring to your attention as you go through, of all these seasons, to go through them all, if you're looking at defensive war, there's only one season in Sandberg's entire career, in 1987, where he finishes with negative defensive war. Every other year is a positive year defensively. And actually, if you come here at 1991 where he is 31 years old. He's worth 1.1 defensive war, which is great. He So he was always a really solid defender his entire career, which is really important. I think sometimes one of the hard parts with gold gloves and fact of the matter is that sometimes they can be a, not a popularity award, but they can be a reputation award. We'll talk about this with Alomar. They're the big names at those positions and had a reputation for being great defenders and made big flashy plays. And so they got the gold gloves. And Sandberg is one of the few guys constantly puts his money where his mouth is that way and is genuinely a great defender almost his entire career and so we get to the end of the 1992 season and right around the middle of the year he signed a four-year 28.4 million dollar extension with the cubs and was at the time the highest paid player in baseball cubs missed the playoffs though we go to 1993 and almost it feels out of nowhere he basically struggles in 1993 he was dealing with a few injuries he had some struggles he hits in 93 it's 309 with a just nine home runs in 117 games he's 45 rbis 67 runs scored and maybe most telling is he doesn't steal a ton of base but he steals about nine over that time period and he makes his final all-star game of his career 1994 he really struggles he's 34 at this point he's he hits 238 he hits five home runs in just 57 games. Really just kind of struggles the whole season and retires just out of the blue. It was I remember when this happened. I was a child. I was like nine. But I remember I was a Sandberg fan, and this was devastating as a kid. I was, it was shocking. It was very surprising. Sandberg wrote a book years later called Second to Home, and in it he basically says, the quote is, The reason I retired is simple. I lost the desire that got me ready to play on an everyday basis for so many years. Without it, I didn't think I could perform at the same level I had in the past, and I didn't want to play at a level less than what was expected of me by my teammates, coaches, ownership, and most of all, myself. And Sandberg had always had a reputation throughout his whole career as being a tireless worker, a relentless worker who worked very hard and always came prepared and put a lot of weight and time into being prepared for games. And so this doesn't shock me that when he struggle with the mental side of the game of the preparation side of the game that he said that's it i'm not i'm not gonna put in an inferior product on the field now of course this doesn't last long he tries to make a comeback in 1996-1997 and he plays but does not play well he hits 244 in 1996 he's 264 in 1997 across those two years he hits just 37 home runs and steals just 19 bases and there are some signs in 96 he has 92 rbis and 85 runs so there are some things to to value there. And even in those years, if you really think about it, he was worth 3.2 war in 1996. Uh, but in 1997, he was worth just 0.8 war in 130 games, 135 games. 
you can tell it wasn't just his heart was not quite in it anymore and so he retires again moving into his post playing career so to say Sandberg is inducted in the Hall of Fame in 2005 and he ends up coming back just after that as a coach he coaches in the minors for the Cubs from 2007 to 2010 and at the time Lou Pinello was coaching the Cubs had given him a actually a very public sort of recommendation that he should be the guy who succeeds him that he should be the next Cubs manager the Cubs don't do that they end up going with someone else and so Sandberg leaves to go coach for the Phillies he spends a little bit of time in their minor leagues but ends up coming up and being named the big league manager from 2013 to 2015 he wins 119 games over that time period the Phillies aren't particularly successful over that time period but Sandberg gets his taste for managing and kind of jumps around coaching and whatnot before being more of a what we like to think is like not a brand ambassador more like just a an ambassador same way we think of like the king and queen or the monarchy over in england he you know would go to cubs events and represent the cubs and give speeches and be a goodwill ambassador for the team so looking at sandberg's career and coming across what he's been able to do for the cubs and again it's hard to emphasize being the guy who pulled them out of this 40-year drought that the, that the cubs have been stuck in and the impact of that, what that means to a city that loves baseball the way Chicago does, and you know, what that means for a franchise as beloved as the Cubs. And then you look at his accomplishments, and you know I rattled them off at the beginning, where he ranks amongst second baseman in terms of home runs and in terms of all these different numbers across the board, while also factoring in that he was an elite second baseman basically his entire career defensively. The question is, where do we rank Sandberg? For reference points, let me reiterate the list here again, as I do every week. Rank number one is Greg Maddox. Rank number two is Ichiro. Three is George Brett. Four is Adrian Beltre. Five is Clayton Kershaw. Six is Edgar Martinez. Seven is Sandy Koufax. Eight is Tony Gwen. Nine is Hank Greenberg. And number 10 is Joey Votto. Number 15 is David Ortiz. Number 20 is Jose Altuve. Number 25 is Dizzy Dean. Number 30 is Sean Green. Number 35 is Prince Fielder. Number 40 is Jason Bay. And finally, number 48 is James Paxton. And my initial, when you start looking at some of the guys in here, when I get closer to the end of season two, or as we go along, at some point I want to do a sort of reshuffling, right? Because I think there are some places where they made sense in the spot they were in at the time. And then you are like, I don't know if this guy should be ahead of ahead of this guy or whatnot but i'm torn in a way to look at someone like because you start getting into robin yount is a, a spot i focused on that's over rank 17 but before we even look at that let's look at above yount is steve carlton and it's hard to like obviously it's hard sometimes to compare pitchers to hitters and uh, but for steve carlton who's also a hall of famer carlton puts up 90 war over his career it's hard to say that Sandberg should go above Carlton. And I have my own issues with Carlton in his Hall of Fame career and where to rank him in that he's a very up and down roller coaster career. He's either the best pitcher in baseball or an average pitcher in baseball and nowhere in between. I don't know necessarily. I also wouldn't put him against David Ortiz or really even Johan Santana. Santana's tough in that he doesn't match up to Sandberg war wise. I remember doing that episode with the really great Carlos Marcano 
and go back and listen to it if you haven't listened to it because it's really fun. We talk a lot about baseball in Venezuela and talk about what Santana meant to them and, and how that felt. But this also guy won multiple Cy Youngs through perfect games. I, I think I'll probably still keep him above Sandberg, even though Sandberg's got an MVP to his name. It's really a question for me of this sort of Robin Yount, Jose Ramirez, Paul Molitor, and Jose Altuve stretch of things. Where do I rank him there? And I'll put him above Altuve because the truth is it's hard to say Altuve should rank above him if I'm saying this is the guy that Altuve should aspire to become. That doesn't seem right to rank them that way. Now, when it comes to Molitor, yes, Molitor is 3,000 hits, and that'll always be the trademark to his name. But the thing is, Molitor was a DH for most of his career. So when I start factoring in that Sandberg was an elite defender his entire career at second base and isn't that far behind him in war, uh, Molitor was at 75.6 war, whereas Sandberg's at 68 war. So it's not even like there's that much of a difference in, in those numbers. I think I put Sandberg above Molitor. Now, the question is, that puts us at number 18 with Jose Ramirez. And this is an interesting question. So Ramirez, we put him there largely based on what we think he'll accomplish. Because he's only 29. He's already in the 40s in war. You know, he is putting up 6-7 war seasons still uh, in the prime of his career. With that being said, it's hard to knock Sandberg for being where we want Ramirez to get to when he already did it. I think that makes sense. Now, the hard part is... And some of this is due to the fact that I've probably in the long run overranked one player and underranked one. And that Robin Yount is probably underranked at this point. If you want to look at the... You know, you think of Robin Yount is at, what, 77 war for his career. Played 20 seasons. Sandberg played. Played 17. Otherwise, they're almost identical players. They have much the same batting average for their careers. I believe they both were like, I think, Yount, it looks like it's a 285 hitter. Sandberg was a 284 hitter for his career. Sandberg has him slightly in OBP, sorry, in OPS, but not by a ton. Sandberg hit more home runs and stole more bases, but Yount got the 3,000 hits where Sandberg didn't. And part of that's those three seasons, right? That if Sandberg had gotten, say, three more seasons of like 170 hits or whatever, he probably would have gotten the 3,000 as well. Yount was a 115 OPS plus hitter for his career. Sandberg was 114. Very similar hitters. And the real big thing that separated them was Yount played for three more seasons than Sandberg did. Now, Yount was also a two-time MVP. Sandberg only won one. It's hard to put him above him, uh, above that. The interesting one, I feel like that, because then you ask what separates, say, Ryan Sandberg, who had 68 war from Ron Santo, who I've got up at number 12, who had 70 war. Part of it was Santo played a harder position, was an elite defender at that. Also, hit almost, I think, 100, probably about 50 to 70 more home runs over the same career span. In fact, actually in, in two years shorter than Sandberg. So while Santo didn't win an MVP, he put up better numbers over a shorter time period. So I'm willing to keep Santo, even though he might be a little too high, because I really have some thoughts about putting Santo above Loft in there. Number 12, but that's a whole different issue for retroactively looking. So mostly, I think... I think it's a question of whether you put Sandberg above Robin Yount or below Robin Yount. Because I can't put, I can't just by putting um, Sandberg above Carlton. Carlton has almost 20 war on him. It's just hard to, 
Hard to go against that, especially considering how many Cy Young Steve Carlton won. So I think it's a question of do you think Ryan Sandberg is goes above or below Robin Yount? And I think at the end of the day, Yount's got two MVPs. Sandberg's only got one. I think Yount goes above Sandberg. So for me, this ranking goes between is between Robin Yount and Jose Ramirez, which would make Ryan Sandberg our new number 18 hitter on the list, which is fun. That's perfect. It's a great ranking for him. You're literally looking at him sandwiched between Hall of Famer Robin Yount and what I believe to be future, future Hall of Famer Jose Ramirez. So that's great. Okay. We have one other player to talk about here. And before we jump into that second player, though, I do want to bring this back to Jose Altuve, right? And the reason I picked Sandberg is both that impact that he had on the franchise feels very much like what Altuve had for the Astros. Taking them to the, the playoffs after so long having not been to the playoffs, those, those feel eerily similar. They're both extreme doubles hitters who found power later in their career, stole a lot of bases. It just feels like the perfect place where I want to say this is where I want Jose Altuve to get to. So that's why I chose Sandberg. He's also one of my favorite players, so I was excited to talk about him. But our, our last player to talk about is a divisive one. Much like Altuve, who's beloved in Houston and was beloved throughout the league and by players, coaches and the press alike, so is Sandberg, right? Not so much for Roberto Alomar, who's our third player we're going to talk about here. He's a bit more divisive, and we'll get into why as we go through his career, but there are, there are some things that really detract from his career that we you can't ignore, and we can debate Roberto Alomar's reputation as one of the greatest defensive second basemen of all time. He has a stretch where he's incredible, but it's not across his whole career like Sandberg, and I think he gets a little bit of the Jeter reputation where... His range wasn't as good as a lot of people like to make it out to be. And so he made a ton of diving plays and huge big stops and things like that. But it was because he was having to dive. Whereas a guy like Sandberg might have made that play without diving. Is the thing, right? So it would be an interesting thing to look at. But uh, for the most part, the numbers seem to imply that Roberto Almar was not this definitive defensive second baseman that history tends to portray him as. But we'll get more into that. First, some of the basics. So Roberto Almar, coming out of Puerto Rico, played for 17 seasons in the majors. He played for seven different teams over that time period. He was a 12-time All-Star, which is third amongst second basemen all time. He was a 10-time Gold Glove winner, four-time Silver Slugger winner. He's a 300 career batting average, which is 32nd amongst second basemen all time. 474 stolen bases, fifth all-time amongst second basemen. 504 doubles is seventh all-time. His 2,379 games played at second base is eighth all-time. His 55 Jaws number is 14th all-time, and his 67 War is 12th all-time. He's 8th in runs scored among second basemen. He's 8th in hits among second basemen all-time. And he was the son of Major League Baseball player Sandy Alomar Sr., and actually the brother of Cleveland great Sandy Alomar Jr., who played catcher for them. That'll come into play later. But he was a, a quick riser into sort of the view of attention, so to say, and he's signed by the Padres at the age of 17 in 1985, and he doesn't even go into rookie ball at this point. He jumps straight into A ball, and he hits 293 with 36 stolen bases and 137 games at A ball that year. He's 17 years old. He's not even an adult yet, and he's hitting 293 in professional baseball with 36 stolen bases. 
Take him to the next year in A ball as well at 18. Hits 346 that season. Guy can't even buy beer yet. And he's hitting 346 in the minors. So, of course, he flies up through the minors. And at 20 years old, he gets called up by the Padres in 1988. For his rookie season, he hits 266 with 24 stolen bases and 84 runs scored over 143 games. Was worth 4.4 war that year. Plays pretty darn good defense as a rookie. And in fact, fun fact, his first hit of his career was against the Astros off of Nolan Ryan. That's how good of a contact hitter he was. And he was a genuinely elite contact hitter. His bat-to-ball skills were outrageous and his ability to get hits. And not just singles, but he got a ton of doubles, had a ton of triples. Even had some years where he hit a lot of home runs for, for his player type and the time period and his skill set. So go from 88 to eight to 1989. He leads the league in plate appearances that year, actually. He hits 295 over 158 games with 42 stolen bases and 82 runs scored. He had a 107 OPS plus that year. It was a 4.5 war. Now, this is to go into when we start talking about his, his defensive prowess. It's hard because that year, for instance, he was worth 0.5 defensive war. And this is the trend for most of his career. If you look down... The defensive war numbers, they are not awful, but they're not great either for what his reputation was. It was the greatest defensive second baseman of his generation. And he turned a lot of double plays. He made a lot of diving stops. He was a very flashy, fun player to watch. Undeniable. But like I said, the, the metrics don't necessarily back up the idea that he was this absurd, unreal generational fielder. Now, we go from 1989, and by the way, he hits 295 that season, right? He wouldn't hit below 280 again until 2002 at age 34. So from 1989 until 2002, he hit at least 280 every single season. That's very impressive. That's really consistent and uh, dependable over over the course of his career. Just a really great hitter. We go from 89 to 1990, and this is his first All-Star game year, and he ends up hitting 287 with 24 stolen bases and 80 runs scored. The power hasn't quite come yet. He only hit six home runs that season in 147 games. He has a, a bit of a tale of two halves in his in his season. The One of the big reasons he gets to go to the All-Star game that year is he going into the All-Star game. He was hitting 311 with a 119 OPS plus. He had 19 doubles and 12 stolen bases in half a season. That's a great year. Then he completely slumps, drops down to the 250s for his batting average the second half of the season. Just really doesn't put up the same kind of numbers. He is only worth 3.4 war that season overall. But looking at it, 12.3 war through your first three seasons is a great start to a career, regardless of how you feel about it. So I don't want to undersell the beginning of Alomar's career. He isn't winning an MVP in his first three seasons like Sandberg was, but he had got off to a really great start for his career here. In the offseason, crazily enough, puts up this awesome season, goes to the All-Star game, and he's traded along with Joe Carter to the Blue Jays for Fred McGriff and Tony Fernandez. So what will be a franchise-altering trade for the Blue Jays? Now, this isn't a bad trade. Fred McGriff was a great baseball player. So was Tony Fernandez. So I don't want to imply this one of the rip-offs of the century like it was. Talk about the Ryan Sandberg trade with Larry Boa. But this will shape the Blue Jays' team for the next half a decade and probably lead into one of their most successful periods of in team history for them. So he gets traded over, and 
performs great for the Blue Jays in his first year. He returns the All-Star game. He wins his first gold glove. He finishes sixth in MVP voting by hitting 295 with 53 stolen bases, 11 triples, 41 doubles, and 88 runs scored. So Toronto makes the playoffs that year, and this is his first playoff berth in his career. And while Toronto is bounced in the ALCS, he plays really great in the five games they play. He hits 474 with nine hits, four RBIs, three runs, and two stolen bases. Now he turns around and comes back here in 1992, and he's even better. He again goes to the All-Star game. He wins the Gold Glove that year, and he finishes sixth in MVP voting, but picks up a Silver Slugger award this year. So he hits 310. With 49 stolen bases, 105 runs scored, 76 RBIs, and 27 doubles. He's a 405 OBP on the season and was good for a 130 OPS plus on the season. He was worth 6.6 war. And it's worth noting again, he put up that 6.6 war while in 1993 being worth minus 0.4 defensive war. So that's how good of a hitter he was that year. He's really great. Toronto makes the playoffs again that year. And they beat Oakland in the ALCS, and Alomar was a big part of the reason why. He hits 423 with 11 hits in six games, including 11, uh, including a home run, a double, four RBIs, four runs, and five stolen bases with a 1.157 OPS. He hits the game-tying two-run home run in the ninth inning of game four, which is the pivotal turning point in the series. He hits up with Dennis Eckersley, who was the unstoppable elite closer of that generation. Just absolutely huge home run. There are many who consider, I know we've talked, when we talked about Jose Bautista, we said that the very famous home run he hits with the, the crazy bat flip where he flings the bat away is the most famous Blue Jays home run of all time, but it actually might be this hit. It's that good and was that big and that huge and had such an impact on the Blue Jays' you know, fortunes from here, right? So they name him the ALCS MVP and they go on to win the World Series in six games that year. Alomar struggles. He hits just 208 with a double, but steals three bases and scores three runs. This is, again, a huge thing. We talk about Altuve and the way he turned around a, a struggling franchise with the Astros. We talk about how Sandberg does this for the Cubs. And we see here Alomar being a big part of doing the exact same thing for the Blue Jays. Big deal. They win the World Series. They come around the 1993, and this is his best year in Toronto. He hits 326 with 17 home runs. 55 stolen bases, 109 runs, 93 RBIs, 35 doubles. He has a 408 OBP with a 141 OPS plus. He's worth 6.1 war that year. He does again, though, register a negative defensive war. So again, we're starting to see uh, that become a pattern over basically the next four to five years for Almar, especially when he's in Toronto and Baltimore. Now, from there, he does go to the All-Star game this year. He wins the Gold Glove. He finishes sixth in MVP voting. Toronto goes to the playoffs again. They beat the White Sox in six games in the American League Championship Series. He hits 292 with seven hits, including a double. He scores three runs. He has four RBIs. He steals four bases. And then they go to the World Series again against Philadelphia. And he hits 480 in the World Series over six games with two doubles, a triple, six RBIs, 12 hits, five runs, and a 1.159 OPS. So just is absolutely crucial to the run Toronto makes to their second consecutive World Series win. Just a huge driving force there in Toronto at the time. Now, we go into 94-95, and as we've mentioned time and time again on this podcast, 94-95 are weird. They, the, the strike happens at the end of the 94 season, carries over into the 1995 season, so cost games both those seasons. This has huge ramifications in so many careers, 
and so many things in baseball, and the Blue Jays are a part of that. They're unable to complete the three-peat. They struggle in both of these seasons, but Alomar plays well. He hits 306 with eight home runs. He steals 19 bases uh, with 78 runs scored in 107 games. So he's put up great numbers when the strike happens in 1994. And then they come back in 1995 and they play 130 games. He hits 300 with 13 home runs, 30 stolen bases, 71 runs scored, and 24 doubles. So he has two great seasons there, but the Blue Jays just don't play as well. They missed the playoff both those years. Alomar wins the Gold Glove both of these years and makes the All-Star game both of these years as well. So now Toronto at this point looks to rebuild and move on from these teams. Alomar elects for free agency and signs with the Baltimore Orioles. In 1996, he has the second best power season of his career. He hits 328 with 22 home runs. He steals 17 bases, scores 132 runs, has 94 RBIs, 43 doubles, and has a 938 OPS on the season, which was good for a 136 OPS plus. He has 193 hits overall. Just a fantastic offensive season. Just really great across the board. Lots of power, tons of counting numbers, just a really impressive season. Baltimore does make the playoffs. In the ALDS, where Baltimore beats Cleveland, Alomar hits 294 in four games with five hits, a home run, four RBIs, and two runs scored. In fact, that home run was the series-winning home run. They go on to face the Yankees in the ALCS, and they lose in five games. Over that time period, Alomar hits 217 with five hits in five games, which is one RBI and two runs scored. 96 is a tough season for Alomar, and really, in many ways, is the career-defining season. Not just because it was one of the best power seasons of his career, not just because he did well in that ALDS, not just because he put up great numbers, but because of an incident on September 27th. On that day, he gets into an argument with the home plate umpire, John Hirschbeck, over a called third strike, and he spits in Hirschbeck's face. Now, Alomar claims in this situation, and obviously, none of us were there. None of us know what was actually said, and no one's ever really backed up or claimed what was actually said. Alomar claims that Hirschbeck uttered a racial slur at him. And I'll say this, because I've thought a lot about how I feel about this incident. I remember being a kid when this happened, and I hated Roberto Alomar for years after that. This was just an inexcusable. Now, mind you, I was 11 when this happened, but to 11-year-old Dan, this was unforgivable, right? And I hated him ever since. I will say the caveat that I say as an adult is I think of this in football when Miles Garrett tried to essentially murder Mason Rudolph with his own helmet, and Garrett said that Rudolph uttered a slur at him. When I think of Ramon Laureano a few years ago charging a coach in their own dugout, I think of some of these things where I see a person of color getting into arguments with people who are not usually people of color, and the defense is, he said, she said, there's only a few things that make someone get that mad to do something like that, or in this case, to get a a grown man to spit in another man's face. There are only a few things that do that. So while I'm not giving credence to what Alomar said, and there are other things that I'll get to in a second that Alomar said, that sort of paint him a bit in the villain role too here. It's just worth keeping that in mind, I think, a little bit. Like, it, it, It's hard to lose 
your temper enough to spit in someone's face like that, knowing the consequences, just because you're mad about the call third strike, right? So just something to keep in mind. Now, on the other hand of that, Elmer also claimed that Hirschbeck had been, oh, had been a bit more, I believe the word he said was bitter, since his son had died of ALS that year, and his other son had been diagnosed with ALS. These are Hirschbeck's kids. Elmer certainly didn't endear himself and earned the the villain sort of tag he got from there on out. And this story gets messier. When Alomar said that, apparently, Hirschbeck had to be restrained from confronting Alomar after those comments. That they, they had this huge blow-up. And Alomar gets hit with a five-game suspension and is made to donate $50,000 to ALS research. And the thing is, uh, what's tough too is that in, in a way that can't look good Alomar wanted to play in the playoffs so he he challenges the suspension he appeals the suspension and the umpires threaten to strike the playoffs if they do it all gets worked out they have the playoffs Alomar plays in the playoffs these actions tend to make you think ill of Alomar and he becomes a bit of a villain throughout the league both in the eyes of the press and obviously with the umpires for sure but this is not not do well for his legacy, and I have a feeling when we get to the ranking part for Almar, it's not going to do great for his legacy there either, and where he ends up on the list. So we go into 1997, Almar suspended for the first five games of the season, but on that, he has a great season. He hits 333 with 14 home runs, he has 36 doubles, he only plays 112 games, and so his other county numbers are down, he only has 60 RBIs, 64 runs scored, 9 stolen bases, he's worth just 3.4 war, and you wonder if to a certain degree some of the outside attention was starting to wear in him. He would get booed in many of the stadiums when he was on the road. He was genuinely considered a villain in the league, I remember at that time. Despite that, he's voted in to start the All-Star game. He doesn't win the Gold Glove that year, which you got to imagine is the press being upset and frustrated with him, possibly. But again, also, it doesn't seem like he the numbers back up that he should have won the Gold Glove that year. He was worth just 0.1 defensive war that year. So... He, at the end of the season, it turns out he was struggling with a shoulder injury all year. And to give you an idea, because this is an important caveat, that it was such a severe shoulder injury. Almar was a switch hitter his entire career. He actually, for the last four months of the year, because of the shoulder injury, could only bat left-handed, right? So it was a pretty rough season for him overall. The Orioles do go to the playoffs, and he does pretty well in the in the division series. It's 300 with three hits, including two doubles in four games. And has two RBIs as they beat Seattle. But then that year, they lose to Cleveland in six games in the AL Championship Series, where he hits just 182 with a home run and two RBIs. Now, in 1998, he hits below 300 for the first time since 1992. So for six straight years, he'd hit over 300. He hits 282 with 14 home runs, 36 doubles, 18 stolen bases, 86 runs, and 56 RBIs. Goes to, he's an all-star. He wins the gold glove again. Baltimore does miss the playoffs that year. And Alomar is worth just 3.8 war that season. So going into 1999, Baltimore decides to blow it up. Alomar signs with Cleveland, joining his brother, Sandy Alomar Jr., who's the catcher over there. And they get to play together. He experiences an extreme career rebirth, especially when you talk from a defensive standpoint. He really turns things around in the three years he plays for Cleveland. He puts up in 1999, he puts up 1.1 defensive war. In 2000, he puts up another year of 1.1 defensive war before 
seeing the tail end of his defensive prowess there in 2001, where he puts up just 0.1 defensive war. But I don't know if it's coaching or the fact they got played next to Omar Vizquel, who was another gold glove uh, winning shortstop. Uh, you know, what the factors were, if it was the, the pitchers who were throwing, the stadiums, whatever. He really starts showing signs of being a good defender again. And that is a big thing. I think for part of that reputation and legacy as well, where we consider him such a great defender for his entire career, even if it wasn't necessarily true. He does have his best offensive season. He hits 323 with 24 home runs, 40 doubles. He leads the league with 138 runs scored. He's 120 RBIs. He steals 37 bases and has a 140 OPS plus that season. He's an all-star. He wins the gold glove. He wins the silver slugger. He finishes third in MVP voting. He's worth a career-high 7.4 war, and it was the third-highest defensive war of his career. And Cleveland makes the playoffs, but they are eliminated by Boston in the American League Division Series in five games. Alomar is great in that series. He hits 368 with seven hits, including four doubles, three RBIs, four runs, and two stolen bases. They go into 2000, and it's more of the same. He hits 310 with 19 home runs, 40 doubles, 39 stolen bases, 111 runs, 89 RBIs, and a 114 OPS+. He's an all-star, he wins a gold glove, and he wins a silver slugger award that year. Cleveland weirdly misses the playoffs that year. It was a very weird year for Cleveland. But Alomar is not why. He was just absolutely fantastic. One of the best offensive players in baseball from an all-around standpoint that year. Now, finally into his last year here in Cleveland in 2001, he's another absurd offensive season. He hits 336 with a 956 OPS. For a guy who doesn't hit a ton of home runs, a 956 OPS is crazy. He hits 20 home runs, he has 34 doubles, he has 12 triples with 193 hits, 113 runs scored, 100 RBIs, and 30 stolen bases. He wins his final gold glove and goes to his final all-star game. He finishes fourth in MVP voting. He's a 150 OPS plus. He's worth 7.3 war. And Cleveland does make the playoffs that year, but they lose in the American League Division Series in five games. Alomar hits just 190 with four hits, including three doubles, three RBIs, and three runs. Now, in the offseason, Cleveland trades Alomar to the Mets. And this is really the beginning of the end for Roberto Alomar. Everything goes downhill from here. In 2002, his defense absolutely just completely falls off a cliff. In that first year, he's worth negative 0.9 defensive war that season. It just really goes downhill. And to be fair, he's, what, 34 at this point? So it's not that shocking. But his average also plummets. He uh, goes all the way down to 266 in 149 games. He's 11 home runs, 24 doubles, 73 runs scored, 53 RBIs, and steals 16 bases. Now, going the, the Mets don't make the playoffs that year. And going to 2003, he plays 73 games for the Mets that year, hitting 258 with 682 OPS before being traded to the White Sox, where he hits 253 with three home runs in 67 games. And a bit of a mystery as to why everything cratered so hard for him but many suspect that he had a hard time with the pressure of playing in new york but again it's also he was 35 at that point so it's not like he was young it's, it's worth wondering if the workload and the time and the, the miles just warm down that, that happens fast in baseball uh, i know some people want something to be other than father time but when you lose it, it, you don't like you lose it a little bit gradually, but then eventually it just it, it's off a cliff. That's how baseball works. It wouldn't be shocking if it just was he was getting old. After that season, he signs with the Diamondbacks. Struggles there, largely, and uh, ends up missing two months of the season with a broken hand. 
He uh, gets let go. He returns to the White Sox and plays in just 56 games that season. Struggles pretty hard for them as well. Going to that offseason, he signs with the Tampa Bay Rays, but he retires before the season starts due to back and vision issues that cropped up in spring training. Almar calls it a career. He's inducted in the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2011. In 2017, he is tasked by Major League Baseball to help grow the game in Puerto Rico, where he is from. But in 2021, we run into the second big scandal and issue in Alomar's career. He is fired by Major League Baseball and placed on their ineligible list. As in, he can never come back and work for Major League Baseball, as I understand that list. And this is because he's accused of sexual misconduct by a baseball industry employee. And never, again, said if he genuinely did it or not or any of those sort of things. But... This was in a string of many sexual misconduct accusations in baseball, and you have to imagine if there's any credence to it at all, that's why they let him go. And this weighs heavily for me. One of my, I will fully admit, one of my sensitive points. I think some people have, like, triggers, so to say, more than others, that for some it's steroids or cheating or not being a jerk or whatever. For me, it is either sexual assault, domestic abuse... Anything like that 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 says to me, you're not a good person, and I don't know how to I don't know how to ever come to terms with that in my brain. But this weighs very heavily with me and how I feel about Roberto Alomar. Now, there's an interesting question as to do you judge the player for things that he was doing after baseball? And I go back and forth on that. I like, especially when you get to the Hall of Fame, and because he was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 2011. And yes, the question, does he get to stay in the Hall? Now, at the time, it was ruled, yes, his plaque will stay in the Hall of Fame. And I don't think it should. Here's the thing. You first got the umpire spitting incident, which is inexcusable in and of itself. Then you have this come up with the sexual misconduct allegation. And like, just for me, you can't claim that the character clause matters when you want to keep Barry Bonds out of the Hall of Fame. And not have a count here. And I don't think you can just shrug your shoulder and say, we already let him in. And then claim that that character clause matters to you. So for me, I think that he sh- if this was legitimate enough for you to fire him, then it's probably legitimate enough that he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. And that's a shame, because he is one of the best second basemen to ever play the game. And he deserves credit for that. But I don't want him representing the game of baseball if this is true. That would be the way I would take a stand on it. But I'm please let me know how you feel. Let me know. Uh, hit me up on Twitter or tell me what you think should be the case. Does he deserve to stay in the Hall of Fame? And like I said, I have, I have a tough time with it. I really genuinely have a tough time with it. Now, with all that in mind, how do we rank Alomar? So it's tough. He's he's a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall of Fame caliber player. He put up great numbers. He's easily one of the best second basemen to ever play the game. He's also, his defense is incredibly overrated, which was pretty much his biggest calling card. He's a fantastic hitter. But if you ask someone to tell you one thing about Roberto Almar, they tell you he's an incredible fielder. And it's hard to weigh in. The numbers don't really back that up. I, I, so there's a lot of things factored in here. And so we'll start at 18 and ask, above or below, Ryan Sandberg. And I feel like just straight up off the bat, below. He, he is not on Ryan Sandberg's level. In my opinion, even if they are close enough uh, to a certain degree in like war and their accomplishments, basically one war separates them. I do think that the character clause stuff and those concerns 
and all that knock him down. I think you'd probably say that they were better hitters than each other in different ways. I think Sandberg was probably a better power hitter, while Alomar is a better contact hitter. But then they cancel each other out in terms of speed. <clears throat> and I think probably then you factor in that Sandberg was an elite defensive player almost his entire career, that definitely Sandberg stays above Almar. I do the same thing for Jose Ramirez. I put Paul Molitor above him. 3,000 hits, no scandals, nothing like that. I'm going to keep Altuve also at number 21 here above him there as well for much the same reasons, especially given the new qualifications of how I feel about the new information about Altuve and the Astros cheating scandal and things like that. I definitely come back and say, you know what? No, this is already factoring in and that I would keep Almar behind Ramirez, especially since, I mean, behind Altuve, especially considering what was done was far more reprehensible in my opinion. It's hard. Homer and Baker is a an innovator, and so you can't look at the numbers here, but he's really the first big home run hitter, and I'm willing to give him a big boost for that. Then we get to Freddie Freeman at 23, and I think I think for me, my instinct is that Freeman is should go higher. But let's actually think about the numbers. Let's do it from a numbers perspective, right? And when you look at Freeman and Alomar compared side by side, now Freeman plays a less difficult defensive position obviously and puts up far worse defensive numbers than Alomar does over his career Freeman obviously beats him in almost almost every non-stolen base offensive category or is right there with him so if you look at Freddie Freeman's numbers just to compare them real quick I'll read them off Freeman has a career 298 batting average Alomar's has a career 300 hitter Freeman's a 386 OBP hitter to Alomar's 371 and Freeman has a career 895 OPS to Alomar's career 814 OPS. Freddie Freeman is a career 140 OPS plus hitter to Alomar's 116 OPS plus. Now, when we go to a lot of the county numbers, obviously Alomar has played four more seasons than Freeman has. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy there, but that's not as big as you would expect it to be. Freeman has 82 more home runs than Alomar, but he's only about 90 doubles behind him with four years difference in them. And then there's only about 800 hits between them, which Freeman would make up for in those four years. He's only about 410 runs behind him. So you start looking at these numbers, start adding them up, and you go, Freeman might be certainly the better power hitter, but might be the better hitter overall as well. And then you get into the other issues, those outside issues. You get into the fact that Freeman for his career is just as good of a hitter in the playoffs. Uh, Almar's a career 313 hitter in the playoffs. Freeman is a career 296 hitter, but has 10 home runs compared to Alomar's four and has a 947 OPS compared to Alomar's 824 OPS in the playoffs. So for me, I, th I think I'm going to keep Freddie Freeman above him here. So then that brings us down to Mo Vaughn at number 24. And that's a f interesting comparison if we were to look at, they're very different players. Like Freeman, Vaughn is a first baseman for most of his career, also a DH. And you're talking a contact hitter versus a power hitter. So it's not the most fair comparison in the world, but also Mo Vaughn was a career 293 batting average hitter with 328 home runs to his name versus Alomar's 210. 
So you're talking well over 100 more home runs in far less time. Vaughn only played for 12 years versus Elmer 16. And Vaughn's got an MVP to his name, so he's got just as many MVPs as Elmar. And Elmar was a better defender at a harder position than Vaughn. But I think the boost in those home runs and some of the overall numbers, again, a career 906 OPS is over it. He's a 132 OPS plus career hitter. So he just, he's a good enough, I think, offensive player compared to Elmar to stay above him, especially, again, when we factor in the scandals. Then we get to number 25 is Corey Kluber. And despite the two Cy Youngs that Kluber's won, I think that's probably where I likely can, can stop bumping Roberto Alomar down because of these scandals. So I think that's right where I'm looking. I don't even need necessarily to do those comparisons. That uh, I put Roberto Alomar above Corey Kluber. So even though I love Corey Kluber and he seems like a much better person, potentially, I think between Movon and Corey Kluber is the right spot for Roberto Alomar. So that is where I'm going to put him. And with that, that's our podcast episode for today. You know, come to some conclusions here. Aside from, obviously, the different scandals for Alomar, when looking at Sandberger and Alomar, both who are right around 70 war for their careers, have accomplished about 17 years into their careers, you see where we want Jose Otuve to get to to make his case for the Hall of Fame as well. I think if he gets to these guys, there's no way he doesn't make the Hall of Fame, especially given a lot of the new things that are coming to light about the Astros cheating scandal and all those things. I think that this these two guys, aside from being really interesting players and fascinating players to talk about and look at over over time, I think they serve as a really good barometer for where we want Jose Altuve to be, in addition to being fascinating and awesome players in and of themselves. So this actually uh, helps us for the first time here break that 50-player mark. So we are having some real fun here. We've had some great episodes. I've loved having everyone listen loved having guests on i'm hoping next episode my plan right now is to do bryce harper but we'll see if that changes i would love to have a guest for that episode so i'm trying to scrounge that up and put that together now i'll let you know when i know more thank you for listening check out the list as a whole they'll be in the show notes really fascinating to see the list of players we talked about eventually i'm hoping this week to add to the notes when i get some time i'm sorry to add to the list what episodes you can find the players in so if you're like oh interesting they talked about Sandy Koufax, who's ranked number seven on the list. When did they talk about Sandy Koufax? You know, we'll say in there, go to episode one, right? Because uh, that was we light up. Our first episode was with Sandy Koufax, Clayton Kershaw, and I believe Steve Carlton. And I should have that on there, hopefully sometime this week, as I get some free time this week. But other than that, get ready for Bryce Harper in two weeks. That should be really fun. Like I said, that's the plan, is to do that. I'll let you know who the guest is going to be. And on that, hit me up on Twitter if you have any thoughts about the rankings today or anything I talked about. Like I said, it was really great getting to hear about Jose Altuve and hear where people stood and also just get more information. Have people who are more in the know let me know what I missed or what I got wrong or where you differ or disagree with me. It's just the whole point of doing this to get us talking about baseball. So you can find me on Twitter at LB Legacies for the podcast or you can find me, I am at Daniel J. Port on Twitter. You can also email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com. Please don't hesitate to let us know what you think of the episode, what you think of the podcast as a whole, what you think of the player rankings, anything you do differently, any rankings you do differently, and we can talk our way through it. Thank you so much, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving, 
and we will talk to you in two more weeks here on Long Ball Legacies here at the Pitcherless Podcast Network. Thanks so much.